The Interchange is brought to you by Jinko Solar, a leading solar panel manufacturer and energy storage integrator. Publicly listed on the New York Stock Exchange, Jinko Solar has deployed 100 gigawatts in 160 countries globally, including more than 15 gigawatts in the U.S. As a global leader with strong regional focus, Jinko Solar has a sales office located in San Francisco, California, and a manufacturing facility in Jacksonville, Florida, with over 300 employees available to provide customers with timely, local service. Jinko Solar now offers energy storage for a variety of residential, CNI, and utility projects. To learn more about Jinko's Eagle Storage Solutions, visit www.jinkosolar.us/interchange. The energy transition is made up of multiple industries, onboarding of new technologies, and comprised of people who are motivated to get to net zero. In recent episodes, I've had the privilege to interview industry leaders representing solar, energy storage, and sustainable fuels. In today's episode of The Interchange Recharged, I was able to sit down with CEO of Freyer Battery, Tom Jensen. Even though you might sort of argue that the United States have in a way been lagging behind a little bit in the energy transition, and once the capital might and the brain power might of the United States really gets behind this, you will see trillions of dollars entering this space and thousands of thousands of the brightest brains on the planet, and therefore you will see massive advancements uh, across the entire value chain of batteries. Freyer Battery is a revolutionary battery and energy storage company located in Norway. Today we'll discuss why the location of the company is important and how they are approaching the decarbonization of the battery value chain. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you give us an overview of Freyer and how you guys feel you have a competitive advantage in energy storage? Sure. So, David, we are a Norwegian company. Uh, we were incorporated back in 2018. Uh, we were inspired by Nordvolt, the Swedish uh, battery company. And as good Norwegians, we tend to think that if the Swedes can do it, we can do it a little bit better. Uh, so that's this uh, friendly rivalry going on there uh, with our with our friends in Sweden. But more importantly, we uh, set out on the mission to build the cleanest battery solutions on the planet. We come from a country which for over a century have been producing and exporting energy in various forms. The whole uh, onshore industrial, uh, let's call it footprint of Norway is built up around hydropower. So we have a close to 100% renewable energy production system in Norway with increasing content of on and offshore wind now, uh, but it's all renewable. And the cost of that renewable energy is also very low, probably the lowest in the world. So we can enjoy long-term power purchase agreements for the manufacturing facilities that we will set up in Norway with very low electricity costs. And that electricity is also clean. And in a world that is fast forwarding towards a sustainable future, producing batteries with renewable energy is going to be an increasingly important advantage and also important from a decarbonization point of view. So from our perspective, producing batteries not only for decarbonizing transportation, but also for providing grid relief, so to speak, when it comes to balancing out intermittent renewable energy sources such as solar and wind, is going to be increasingly important moving forward. And all of these batteries, which you know we require quite a lot of, in our opinion, has to be produced as sustainably as possible. So from a life cycle perspective, we want to get as close to net zero as possible and ultimately over time maybe even have carbon negative batteries. And that will need to happen by first and foremost producing the batteries themselves in an area with low cost renewable electricity and then also over time establishing the supply chain for the materials that go into batteries also in areas where uh, low-cost renewable electricity is present. So that's kind of core, let's call it uh, advantage number one, is really the renewable energy situation and the localization of the entire supply chain. The next thing, which is equally important, I think, is that Norway has over this century built up quite strong experiences in building and operating complex energy and energy-intensive process industries. And we've also built up an oil and gas industry offshore in Norway, 
with many mega projects which are very complicated and very harsh environments. And that capability spectrum, if you like, that has been developed in, again, producing and exporting energy is something that we think is quite applicable to the battery industry uh, in many regards, right? So we will be able to build facilities fast, on time and on budget, and we'll be able to sort of optimize them and operate them flawlessly over time. Third thing which is important, uh, David, is Norway is, as you know, the country in the world with the highest adoption of electric vehicles. We started this journey 12, 13 years ago, and now over 90%, 90% of all new cars being sold in Norway are battery electric in some way. So this obviously has led to an institutionalization of knowledge around electrification, uh, range anxiety, charging stations, uh, let's call it supplemental and supporting industries around electrification is popping up everywhere. Education programs and universities and R&D, et cetera, is moving into the space. So you get this cluster-based kind of development that sort of generates quite a strong momentum in and around what we're doing. So uh, finally, and maybe the most important thing, is we are building now first to scale a US-based technology. It's a so-called semi-solid production platform, which is kind of a pun on being halfway to solid state batteries, which it really isn't. But this is a technology that has been developed at MIT uh, in more than over more than 10 years. Uh, and it's, in our opinion, next generation lithium-ion batteries using the same supply chain as conventional battery producers use, but dramatically simplifying both the production process and not least uh, size and complexity of producing the batteries. So that means that we can reduce cost quite dramatically and we can build much larger batteries as well than what conventional players can do. Uh, so all in all, these are four, let's say, different competitive advantages that we feel will put us in uh, the call it Premier League, if you like, of battery production uh, when we get to scale. And uh, the good news is that a lot of stakeholders, customers, partners, supply chain, etc., seem to uh, appreciate and support what we're doing. So we have a lot of momentum going for us and super excited about the, the opportunity. And you guys have a target of battery cell production capacity of 43 gigawatts by 2025, which is a pretty aggressive ramp up. How do you see yourselves going about that? So a couple of things to note on this one, David. So first of all, uh, we went public on the New York Stock Exchange last year in July, and we based our value proposition to our investors on three core strategic tenets. It's speed, scale, and sustainability. I spoke about sustainability already. And to sort of speak about the, the speed part, 10 days after we went public, we made our first investment decision into something we label our customer qualification plant. Uh, which many sort of refer to as a pilot, but it's really not a pilot. It's an actual industrial scale production line of the battery manufacturing facilities that we will establish at commercial scale. What that means is that we will very rapidly be able to stress test and let's call it enjoy all the headaches that the battery cell manufacturers are facing when they're ramping up production. But we're doing that not in a pilot line, but in a line that is the actual scale that we will have when we establish commercial facilities. This facility is on track to start up production towards the end of this year. And then we will spend the better part of next year basically trialing and erroring and figuring out where the bottlenecks are and sort of ensuring that we have identified 80 to 90 percent of the pain points before we then start up our commercial facilities. As I said, the 20 frame technology is extremely space efficient, um, and it's probably 80% smaller than conventional lithium-ion battery production. This means that we can establish capacity inside existing industrial acreage, or even inside existing industrial buildings. And that, of course, allows us to move faster and therefore scale up capacity faster. So we have established what we like to call a modularized, idealized battery manufacturing footprint. The first facility, commercial one, what we label Gigafactory 1 and 2, uh, which we have combined into one larger development, will come online in the first half of 2024. And then we will, every three to six months thereafter, establish new production capacity based on 
this idealized, if you like, uh, modularized manufacturing footprint or blueprint. And we have already secured acreage in Finland. We have secured additional acreage in Norway, next to where we are building our first eight production lines. And we have secured a joint venture partnership in the United States with Coke Strategic Platforms. Uh, we're now in site selection mode with various supporting entities in the U.S., and we've already received 130 interested parties for us to locate facilities around the U.S. So uh, it's a combination of a strong industrialization and project execution team that have built multi-billion dollar projects in parallel in many other industries previously, coupled with a very efficient technology, coupled with a very strong market sentiment and, and customer demand, coupled with having worked on a broad variety of different sites and already done literally the groundwork to, to deploy these solutions. So, so that's why we feel good about having an aggressive ramp up and stress testing the challenges of getting it to industrial scale through an actual industrial scale uh, customer qualification plant. So that's a little bit why we think we can do that. Uh, I'm sure that we will have some pain points and headaches that we haven't thought about, but uh, we're approaching this in a very sort of rigorous and structured industrial manner. And then we're combining that with best available technology in a marketplace that seems to be ever growing and insatiable when it comes to appetite for for batteries. So uh, so that's a little bit how we're thinking about that, David. And on the technology, what raw materials are you using in the batteries? So this is a technology platform that is chemistry agnostic or chemistry flexible. So this means that we can produce LFP batteries, which are the first batteries that we will produce. So lithium iron phosphate batteries. We can also produce high nickel content batteries, be it NMC or NCA batteries. We could produce any cathode and anode chemistry in the production setup, uh, depending on what our customers want. There is a lot of demand right now for LFP-based batteries, so that will be uh, the first part of what we're doing. But we can also build NMC batteries inside the same production facility, because each production line can be tailor-made and tweaked to our customers' needs. So in the first commercial facility, which will be 18 to 20 gigawatt hours in total, we have eight production lines, and we could principally produce LFP in one production lines and NMC in another one. Now, this facility will most likely be dedicated in its entirety to LFP-based batteries because we have more demand than what we can produce in that facility for LFP batteries alone. So we're right now thinking about how to accelerate and scale up additional capacity in our uh, other uh, locations around the world, including the other ones in Norway. So uh, yeah, LFP first and then uh, a broader variety later, let's just say. And what about offtake agreements? Have you been able to secure offtake agreements with some customers now? We have indeed. So we have already announced uh, an initial agreement with Honeywell for 19 gigawatt hours worth of, uh, of demand. We've also announced a 31 gigawatt hour contract with a not yet named uh, industrial party. This is an OECD, very large developer of ESS systems and many other industrial applications for that matter. We're entering into a joint venture with that party also to develop final ESS solutions uh, for a broad variety of, of different downstream applications. We have very strong incoming demand, which will be converted to offtake agreements as we speak, and we'll be providing announcements on this on a running basis. So as I mentioned, uh, we have already announced more than 50 gigawatt hours of offtake agreements, and there is a lot more to come. So uh, all in all, very positive development, uh, probably more than 50 ongoing uh, negotiations and discussions with different customers for a broad variety of applications. Some are more mature, some are less mature, and it cuts across the ESS space to the EV space, to commercial mobility, to the marine applications, and so on and so forth. So Everything that moves essentially um, needs batteries in some way, shape or form if the world is going to, you know, decarbonize, as mentioned. And there is an increasing understanding and recognition that batteries also need to complement more renewable energy development and also to provide stress reliefs, as I like to call it, for, for grids around the world. 
so yeah again the appetite there's no there's nothing wrong with the market that's not really the challenge uh, i would rather sort of say the challenge is supply chain and and so on but uh, but we also have some pretty good ideas around how to solve that but uh, that's a, li a little bit on on the demand side david Great. That, that was actually where I was going to go was on the supply chain side. I mean, obviously, uh, we're seeing a crunch uh, on the materials for energy storage. What are you seeing from, from your standpoint and what are you doing to combat that? So a couple of reflections on this. So first of all, we don't really see that there is a shortage of the metals and minerals that the world needs for full decarbonization. We do see temporary bottlenecks, including ones that are here now. Uh, lithium hydroxide and lithium carbonate are, are of course, uh, the, uh, the hot potato these days uh, and have uh, really spiked up in terms of pricing relative to where they were last year. Um, we uh, need about 13 different input factors into our facilities. Um, we have secured frame agreements with all 13 main suppliers of these materials already. Uh, we're now finalizing uh, the next sort of step in our journey, which is to ensure that we have appropriate volume and pricing under these frame agreements. Uh, and we are ultimately looking to localize and decarbonize as much of that supply chain as possible. And in this context, again, back to what I said originally, Norway has a very high surplus of the lowest cost renewable electricity that you can find in the world. And most of these input factors are very energy intensive products and you need to establish a lot of additional capacity. Uh, in addition, the large customer segments in Europe and the United States will increasingly want security of supply and that security of supply being located close to the point of use. And this means that not only need battery cell manufacturing capacity to be established close to the customer, but also the upstream part of battery cell manufacturing, we need to do the same. So cathodes, anodes, electrolyte, copper foil, whatever you need, separators, etc., will typically tend to be located close to where the battery cell manufacturing capacity will be established. And then you will see cluster-based developments here, I think, where in Europe, I think it's reasonable to think that the Nordics, Germany, and maybe Hungary will emerge as kind of three large clusters of battery development in Europe. And in the US, you'll probably tend to see similar things. Uh, we don't know exactly yet where those clusters will be, but we will ensure that that happens. So we're already in very active dialogue with all the leading technology providers on all the key raw materials uh, and active materials that we need in battery cell manufacturing and all of them are very interested to establish either joint ventures or licensing their technology to us or building themselves and selling to us. And we're exploring all different business models to ensure that we, again, localize that production, decarbonize that production, and ultimately secure the raw materials we need for the uh, ambitions we have. And on the decarbonization of the value chain, I mean, how do you deal with procuring some of the raw materials from other countries, whether it be, you know, cobalt out of DNC or nickel from, from China. How do, you, how do you help with the whole decarbonization of the value chain when you're trying to get raw materials from some uh, other countries where you may not be able to have an impact on that? Well, uh, again, I think part of the reason why we like the Nordics a lot beyond being Norwegian is that there is a lot of uh, raw materials coming online in the Nordics, lithium, nickel, cobalt, to mention a few. And of course, we are investigating all different areas that have different sources of raw materials. Australia is a country that has a lot of raw materials. Of course, South America, many countries where, where a lot of raw materials. There is quite a lot of lithium actually in the US and other materials as well. Norway has the Western Hemisphere's largest processing plant of nickel, cobalt and copper. It's called Nickelverk. It's located in Kristiansand, not so far from, from where our main offices are. So I think it's absolutely viable to consider and think about uh, securing the rock and the minerals from locations that are uh, not only sustainable, but also ethically okay. Of course, we will not touch bad cobalt from Congo. Uh, but having said that, there's quite a lot of cobalt coming out of the Congo that are produced responsibly. 
Uh, we already have a relationship with Glencore where we are sourcing or we agreed to source fully recycled and fully responsibly produced and recycled cobalt into our high nickel content cobalt containing battery solutions over time. So we're quite comfortable uh, with this, uh, meaning that we see solutions to this which are viable and acceptable. But of course, we need to get up early in the morning to, to secure all of this because there's a lot of activity that needs to happen for the batteries to ultimately be 100% sustainable and 100% responsibly produced. But there is no choice, uh, in our opinion, to not do it. We cannot move into a decarbonization era, so to speak, an electrification era without also addressing uh, some of these problems. Uh, if we, the humanity is going to move to a situation where batteries are produced responsibly and sustainably, we need to start all the way from the start, so to speak. And this is part of what we have committed to our investors and well, as well. So the whole ESG aspect of what we offer is something that is highly valued and sought after, and quite frankly, from a number of our investors, and we support it. And we want to take the lead in this regard. And to your earlier point about uh, supply chain crunch, I agree with. I mean, the, we have the minerals available to support the energy transition, but there are the bottlenecks. And I think one of the points is that we need to increase mining capacity in some of these materials. How do you see that progressing over the next few years? And, and what do you think needs to be done to help alleviate some of these bottlenecks? So a couple of points in this regard. So there is, of course, mining is tricky in a way subject because it leaves literally of course uh, damage to the crust but a lot of the people in Freyr come from Norsk Hydro which is the Norwegian industrial giant which is one of the largest aluminium producers in the world fully integrated upstream into bauxite mining etc and bauxite mining as one example is one that has been quite heavily criticized in certain parts of the world so I think we have a DNA and a footprint in terms of what one shouldn't do. And Hydro is, of course, one of the companies with the most solid track record in this regard. So we know what, let's say, appropriate mining practices and sustainable and ethically sort of responsible mining practices are. And we will force that upon our suppliers and or do it that way ourselves should we decide to sort of go upstream, up upstream, and also do mining. We are not intending to do that. Uh, so we will have a very strict qualification procedure with the ultimate suppliers of the metals and minerals that we are going to use. So far, that has proven to be a reasonably straightforward uh, discussion, but a lot of activity needs to happen. Now, another thing I could mention in this regard is there is a lot of talk around seabed mining for many of these minerals which of course is still an area where homo sapiens, so to speak, don't know enough. So we are definitely supporting more investigation into how one potentially could do seabed mining responsibly. I don't think one can conclude one way or the other on this just yet. We need to understand better what do we actually do with the seabed in, in these you know deep ocean depths, etc. So I think part of the answer to the question, David, is we need to understand the full implications of what we're doing. We need to be willing to take the cost of doing that. And the whole value chain will need to sort of be willing to, to sign up to that. And, and we are actually seeing that the, the value chain, including the end customers, are looking for very responsibly, in a way, solutions across the entire value chain. So Engaging with suppliers, knowing what is best practice, leveraging you know competence and having an open mind in terms of different sources, I think is kind of the focus areas that we have to, to enable this to happen. And there'll continue to be advancements on that front. I mean, I know on the lithium side, there's there's the brine method uh, that is developing, but I think it's still you know years away from uh, you know being fully commercial on that. But I think we'll continue to see that over the next few years as well. I agree. So there, I mean, I have been uh, working on maturing and developing disruptive technology for more than 15 years. And uh, uh, one thing is for certain, 15 years ago, uh, nobody believed what we're doing today. It was even remotely possible. 
and it's going to be the same uh, a decade from now. We're going to look back at some of the discussions we had 10 years ago, and we're going to laugh at it, really, because we are so good. We, meaning uh, Homo sapiens, at sort of improving things when we put our mind to it. And one thing which I'd sort of like to add to this is, even though you might sort of argue that the United States have in a way been lagging behind a little bit in the energy transition, I do think that they are now coming hard and fast. And once, in a way, the capital might and the brain power might of the United States really gets behind this, you will see trillions of dollars entering this space and thousands of thousands of the brightest brains on the planet. And therefore, you will see massive advancements uh, across the entire value chain of batteries. Uh, so the Asians have sort of a 30-year head start, but everyone else is catching up very fast. And I'm thinking that, you know, 10 years from now, you'll see a much more balanced industry with much more activity happening close to the point of use, which, of course, will be in large part the US and Europe. And you will probably, over that time period, close a lot of the gap between the demand-supply inequality, so to speak, that you see between Asia and Europe and the United States. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, there's definitely been a mentality shift that I've witnessed in the States over the last 24 months or so, and, and it's something that is very prevalent th that you can see. What do you see on the recycling side, and what is Freyer doing there? I mean, that, that should end up being a pretty big component going forward. But from a technology and commerciality standpoint, we're really not there. But I think we'll continue to see development on that front. What is Freyer doing in regards to recycling and how do you see it in a few years from now? So recycling is important. Um, but I also, it's important also to sort of recognize that we are developing battery solutions that we want to last for a long time. And they are lasting generally longer than one anticipates when one is putting them in production. And of course, it really hasn't been those large volumes of recyclable batteries, right, just yet. Uh, the only area in the world that is starting to get some meaningful volumes of uh, end-of-life batteries is Norway. Because we started the adoption of electric vehicles some 12, 13 years ago, so actually starting to see some end-of-life batteries coming in for recycling. And the first uh, real plants for recycling lithium-ion batteries are being established in Norway uh, between uh, Nordvolt and Hydro. And they're establishing it in Fredrikstad, not so far from where we are. We obviously have good relationships and dialogues with them. We are investigating also here all the newcomers and existing technology providers in the recycling space. We will have a zero waste policy in our facilities. So we're not going to have any emissions of anything anywhere. So we will reuse and recycle everything that we have. The 24M technology, which is again, this semi-solid production platform, which really speaks to the structure of the mix of the active materials and the electrolyte. It's a clay-like mix. That's why it's called semi-solid. So it's kind of a cookie dough or a gingerbread kind of structure to it. Uh, what that means from a recycling perspective is that it's much easier to extract the black mass out of that material. So we will probably be able to not have any scrap in our production process. The production process as well is dramatically simplified and designed such that you won't have cuttings and clippings. And that also eliminates almost uh, any risk of contamination in the battery itself, which of course is the largest source of thermal runway potential in a conventional battery that is also almost entirely eliminated because of the structure of the of the production process itself so uh, not only will that sort of impact low scrap rates in our facilities in the production process itself but if when we have batteries that aren't performing because you will inevitably have a lot of batteries when you produce them that that aren't initially sort of meeting the specs that, that you set out to produce, but then you can recycle that black mass into sort of a new batch with a reasonably simple uh, sort of additional facility or, or additional machine, because you're not, we're not using chemical or toxic chemicals, binders and, and solvents, as the conventional battery cell producers are. So that means that it's much easier to sort of extract it. And ultimately, again, when these batteries uh, are at their end of life, which again is 10, 20 years into the future, they will still be much easier to break apart, so to speak, and recycle. So our view on recycling is 
that over time you will probably see us reaching more than 70, maybe more than 80% of the feedstock going into a fully decarbonized and electrified world with multiple gigafactories all over the planet, maybe more than 80% of all materials going into those facilities will over time come from recycled batteries. But that, of course, means if you are in a 20 terawatt hour per annum installed global capacity world, you still need six terawatt hours worth of new material annually, uh, which, of course, is six times what is installed on the planet today. And in the interim leading up to such a steady state environment, uh, you would need to probably overinvest in capacity uh, to be able to sort of deliver uh, all the batteries that are needed. So um, recycling is core, but it's not going to be a meaningful supply source of uh, materials until some years from now. So I think it's, of course, important to focus on, but I think people need to be aware that in the next decade or so, most of the feedstock going into new battery developments will come from mined and processed new material. With the growing use of renewables, such as solar, in our energy mix, the role of energy storage systems is more important than ever to ensure grid stability and reliability. Jinko Solar has you covered with battery storage solutions for grid edge to CNI and residential application. Jinko's new Eagle CS energy storage platform is a fully integrated turnkey AC coupled system featuring lithium iron phosphate or LFP batteries. It's scalable and fully configurable, making it ideal for any CNI or utility application. Eagle CS features both container level battery storage and modular solutions for maximum flexibility in system design. From microgrids to full-scale utility applications, Eagle CS has a solution and it's all backed by one of the most trusted brands in the renewable energy industry. Jinko's Eagle RS is a fully integrated DC coupled residential energy storage system that features best-in-class safety with LFP battery chemistry, an intelligent US-based monitoring app, and a single wrapped warranty. Jinko's high-capacity storage system is ideal for homes that need more than a few hours of backup. The use of just one single hybrid inverter for both the solar and the storage energy conversion provides the best value for solar plus storage installations. Visit www.jinkosolar.us interchange to learn more about Jinko Solar's Eagle Storage products. And what's been done on the policy front to further battery storage in the energy transition and recycling for that matter. I know it's, it's a few years down the road, but what has been done and what do you think needs to be done? Well, so when are introducing, of course, uh, recycling thresholds and, and how much of you know, battery mineral X, Y, and Z needs to be over X percent of the, the battery for it to be approved and or for it to sort of enjoy certain, uh, let's call it uh, subsidy requirements or, or support mechanisms. And more of that is going to be important. I think you will see carbon taxes in various ways being implemented for the low carbon batteries to sort of be, relatively speaking, prioritized relative to those that have a higher carbon footprint. And of course, the governments around the world will just, they know what to do. I mean, it's not rocket science to implement these things. Of course, we need to balance that against what is realistic to achieve. So, of course, there needs to be technology that can actually break apart the molecules in existing batteries and be reasonably economically viable for that to sort of be turned back into productive use. But when we do the math on all of this, I think as long as there is availability of end-of-life batteries, you will find that you have economically viable technical solutions to break those materials apart because they are quite expensive and therefore quite valuable. So I think the governments around the world, they all know what to do. And I keep saying that as long as the governments do what they say they will do, we're not going to have a problem. Problem is that they don't necessarily always do what they say they're going to do. But this is not, again, something that I lose any sleep over. Uh, if anything, we want stricter regulation, faster because we want to produce the cleanest and most responsibly produced batteries on the planet. 
And the tougher the legislation around this, the better it is for us. A big topic these days, obviously, is inflation. And that has multiple different components to it. Uh, I mean, you've got you've got spending, you've got supply chains, the impact of of COVID restrictions. Uh, one of them being energy transition uh, as a potential factor. As we continue through the energy transition, you've got inflation where it is. How do you get people continuing to support the effort when we have inflation levels where they are? Well, that's a great question. It's obviously the trillion dollar question. Uh, I think. In part, there is some sort of logic in the sense that a big part of the inflationary pressure that we're seeing is because energy is becoming expensive. So from a capital availability point of view, that that kind of then supports the notion of more capital going into the energy transition, because ultimately we are moving towards a world where the marginal cost of energy gets close to zero. Because remember, the feedstock in renewable energy is sunlight and wind and water. And of course, they are fully renewable, so they go over and over again. And as you know, Homo sapiens gets better and better at building larger and larger uh, windmills and wind parks and offshore and so on, the world, of course, has more wind uh, movement in it to probably satisfy 20 times the energy demand that Homo sapiens has. And that's you know a resource that doesn't cost anything. Same with sunlight. There you're sort of looking at several thousand factors more than uh, humanity needs relative to how much energy is bombarding the earth every year or every day um, from, from the sun. And we've now become quite good at sort of developing and producing wafers and solar panels, etc., that are quite efficient. And batteries, as you know, have come down in cost by more than 90% over the last decade still going to drop more in cost as we move forward. So we're moving closer to an era where you will have deflationary impact from energy. But of course, that's not going to happen tomorrow, because right now battery costs are increasing. Uh, but that is uh, due to the fact that the raw materials that we just spoke about are increasing in price. But it's still you know, 90% cheaper than what it was 10 years ago. So it depends a little bit on how you're thinking about it and how you're looking at it. And we, as responsible parties and, and companies for investors to invest in, will need to sort of provide risk-adjusted returns, uh, you know, to our investors that they feel comfortable with. And so far, there's been massive, massive interest in what we're doing. Final thing I'd like to say on this is, of course, the governments around the world might sort of in a temporary period need to play a more, a more important role in enabling this transition to happen and provide guarantees for project finance approaches, etc. maybe a little bit outside what they're used to. But again, there is no shortage of capital in the world. I mean, I am personally quite surprised that we haven't seen more inflationary pressure earlier uh, than what we are seeing right now. But now, of course, everything seems to be happening at the same time with COVID and the, the war in Russia and supply disruptions on this and that and so on. So all sort of seems to be happening in a perfect storm kind of sense. But our opinion is that the largest and most sophisticated investors on the planet see through that and, uh, and are investing for the long term. And again, final thing, good news about being Norwegian Norway is the largest investor on the planet. So we own 1.6% of all listed stock. So we have a sovereign wealth fund, which is $1.4 trillion. And we are 5.6 million people. So of course, being a Norwegian company, having support from the Norwegian government isn't a bad thing for us in the current day and age. But you need, again, a compelling value proposition. You need to you know, pass all due diligence tests and all of that. And uh, we're working hard to do that. And uh, I don't see this as a as a material problem uh, moving forward. But uh, there will be some distortions and uh, and some issues that we need to grapple with, but nothing that we can't handle. And what are your feelings on the financing market? I mean, you mentioned potential government guarantees to 
to help with the risk-adjusted returns. But but absent that, you know, we, we've seen a lot more interest in energy transition companies from a financing standpoint. How did Freyer start? Uh, what are you seeing just in general in terms of the bankability, the technology, particularly historically where you really needed to see a proven concept, established business, and then you started seeing much more, you know, absent the VC funds? money coming in, but I think they've started to move up to backing technology and ideas, and that seemed to open up a little bit a little bit more. And I just was curious on your thoughts, uh, what you're seeing there. Yeah. So I think on, on financing, again, I don't think there is a shortage of capital. There's a very large pool of investors that are very interested in what we are doing, and these include some of the largest strategic industrial and financial players on the planet. And not only American ones, but increasingly, I would say, U.S.-based players are, are very interested in this. And these are, of course, entities that can write very big checks, uh, and they are uh, interested in doing so. So I think uh, availability of capital, again, that's not going to be an issue. I think bankability of, uh, of the solutions and technology is, of course, core if you want to project finance this, because you don't want to equity finance everything that you're doing, that's going to be too expensive. And the good news, again, from from our point of view on the technology that we have, it's already commercially introduced. This was actually one of the criteria when we selected our technology that we didn't want too much technology risk. We're still going to be the first one to deploy it at gigawatt hour scale. So there is some remaining scale up risk in it, but that is actually something we also sought for. Because if it's kind of been done and dusted and proven already, it's much harder to sort of establish yourself in a profitable way. And therefore, the interest from the investors will tend to be less. So you need to find that balance of some remaining scale up uh, that needs to happen. We are doing that. uh, And we're doing that from a Norwegian vantage point with the competencies I just mentioned. And uh, we de-SPAC'd, right, via... Uh, a SPAC company on the United, uh, in the US, and this is kind of back to our scale, uh, let's call it strategic tenet, that you need to build that scale and therefore you need to be at the most sophisticated capital market in the world, which of course is uh, in the United States. And we timed it well, uh, closing our pipe transaction before the end of January last year, prior to the additional requirements coming from SAC on, on, on SPAC companies, which started in earnest uh, during February. So we raised more than $700 million in that context, and that's a good start, as we keep saying. But our ambition, right, is to reach more than 100 gigawatt hours of capacity by 2030, and then we're going to need a heck of a lot more than $700 million. So the next step in this is, of course, uh, debt-based financing, which, you know, will be a combination of project finance and uh, certain degrees of uh, bond-based structures. But then over time, we will also add additional capital sources to it, uh, any grants that we can get our hands on. And there's quite a lot of them out there for this energy transition. And there will be a combination of different sources of capital, but uh, no shortage for strong value propositions. Uh, On the contrary, there is more demand for Freyer stock uh, from a financing point of view than what we can offer at this point. As companies develop, I mean, getting the appropriate capital structure in there and layering on some debt financing is, is the evolution of a company and, and just getting that right-sized. Uh, what are you seeing on the debt premiums? Are you seeing that for energy transition companies that that premium is, is becoming a little bit more attractive uh, from historical rates, say, two years ago? I think it's a little bit too early to say whether we are sort of seeing that emerging in a, in a very firm way. I think there's a lot of people talking about green bonds and sort of green ESG financing, etc. But a lot of it is in the marketing, I think, and not so much in the reality of things. But uh, there are pockets of capital and sources of capital that are providing differentiating features on the terms that you can get and, and the requirements for the capital. So maybe because of if you have an excellent ESG score, which of course we aspire to do, not only will you be included in relevant you know, indices, et cetera, which of course is also important from a capital market allocation point of view, but it also provides you with an opportunity to access other debt-based funds uh, that, that might sort of have better terms or better requirements attached to it. So it's definitely moving in that direction. And there is a lot of activity ongoing 
in our financing department around that as we speak. So over time, yes, definitely, there will be sort of a premium or a discount, depending on what you're talking about, to having strong ESG compliance. Um, and, and capital will tend to sort of gravitate towards that, again, driven by regulation to a large extent. And all of these big financing and financial institutions are also setting quite high goals on only, so to speak, allocating capital to more and more ESG compliant solutions. Uh, and then there will be a competition for the best projects uh, also from a financing point of view. Yeah, it's curious because you see a lot of announcements. I mean, almost weekly banks coming out with new initiatives for green financing. It still seems a lot of this financing is coming from funds. And I'm just wondering at what point you see the banks start playing a bigger role, particularly in the debt financing, like they do with traditional established companies. I think that there's an interest, but your regulated banks obviously have metrics that they need to hit uh, from an internal compliance standpoint. I'm just curious who you're seeing and playing in that space right now and how that evolves over the next few years. Yeah, so, so we, we have teamed up with Societe Generale and DNB, uh, the largest Norwegian and largest Nordic bank. And to, to speak about the DNB as such, they have set an ambition to provide 100 billion NOC of financing to only green projects over the next sort of eight years. Uh, so we're already seeing that, you know, these targets are manifesting themselves into them leaning forward in a different way uh, in the project-based financing or debt-based financing that, that they can offer. And it's actually starting to impact, again, in a positive way. The terms and condition of that financing but as i said initially i think there's still some ways to go before there is a real premium or real discount in there that is kind of noticeable for companies such as ours but it's definitely moving in that direction and we see uh, that you know we can access sources of funds that we previously probably couldn't have just as a share uh, let's say consequence of having uh, the value proposition and business model that we have what do you see as uh, the competitive market in energy storage and where Frere sits? Are you seeing any technologies develop that could continue to advance over the next few, few years? So, so we are of the opinion that uh, lithium-ion batteries will be the most important energy storage technology for the next decade. Uh, I think there is a lot... A lot of development uh, happening within the lithium-ion uh, battery technology space that will enable it to not only be two and four hour storage but maybe eight to twelve hour storage as well and as costs keep coming down and supply chains are improving and we get to lithium metal anodes and higher silicon content in the anodes etc and better and better energy density in the in the cathode materials I think the other sort of storage, pump hydro, other sort of means of uh, storage will struggle a lot to get to the same level of cost effectiveness just because of the sheer size of the lithium-ion battery market. So I think there is still a reasonably large degree of underestimation of how much ESS solutions that will be covered by lithium-ion batteries. Remember... Lithium-ion batteries have come down because of the explosive demand, which is kind of a bad word to use in batteries. But on the EV front, the costs have come down by more than 90%. And that, of course, now is enabling levelized cost of storage to come quite down significant or come down quite significantly using lithium-ion battery solutions. So from a, from a storage point of view, I think, you know, hydrogen as a longer-term storage medium is going to be important but it's probably not going to be cost competitive until a decade from now so you will see blue hydrogen and you'll see green hydrogen emerging but it's still going to be quite costly and they do depend upon free energy uh, so you'll see probably large wind parks being developed in conjunction with hydrogen uh, solutions but when you're sort of getting five to ten years down the road david uh, the uh, levelized cost of storage of best available lithium-ion battery solutions will be probably 50% of what it is today. And at that point, it's going to be even harder for green hydrogen to compete against it. So, so I think you will see better and better anodes, better and better cathodes, better and better production processes, 
you always have solid state kind of lurking in in the in the weeds here and you will find again that homo sapiens are eliminating more and more of the dead weight and the dead space in the final product spectrum so you'll have more and more energy crammed up in these cubes or containers and they will last for longer and longer and again getting closer and closer to that marginal cost of production which is going to be very low so that's maybe a slightly different view that many are arguing that there are many technologies that is advancing fast and uh, is going to be competitive but what some of these analysis tend to forget is that lithium-ion batteries have a lot of momentum and a lot of capital and we keep sort of developing in a much faster pace just because of the size of the market and the size of the production setup and the number of players and so on so again it's back to what i said originally when the U.S., which is the market in the world with the fastest ESS adoption rate, when they really get behind this, you know, with the likes of Nextera and Fluence and Poen and, and, and some of these large heavy hitters, you will just see that, you know, ESS solutions using lithium-ion batteries will just keep populating the different sectors. And finally, there's the Stanford study that was out last year, which sort of spoke to lithium-ion batteries as a alternative to upgrading all of the grid structures around the U.S. and creating either three or nine regional sort of larger grids using lithium-ion batteries for our storage solutions and then doing system-level thinking on it so that you find pockets of solar, pockets of wind that have correlation that, you know, that fit so that, you know, coupling that with four-hour storage systems established around in a systemic manner, you can actually create baseload power with uh, fully renewable energy sources and renewably produced lithium-ion batteries at costs that are only a fraction of what current combined cycle gas with the least expensive gas can provide today. So I'm, uh, as you can hear, quite optimistic on behalf of the lithium-ion battery industry. And of course, I'm above average biased in this context. Uh, but, uh, but I do think that, you know, uh, the other technologies, while we're rooting for them, and I really do support hydrogen development and, and, and other sort of renewable energy storage solutions as well, I think they need to get up even earlier in the morning than we are doing, uh, because they have some catch up to do. And I can tell you that I get up really early. So, uh, so you know, good luck. <laughs> It's interesting. We were talking about the government incentives uh, on the energy transition and helping with with the risk-adjusted returns. But as you see these costs with energy transition come down, which we've seen when solar, I mean, we've got some hiccups right now with, with some supply chain issues and inflations, but they'll get worked out. At what point does the government step away from these incentives when they become to the cost efficiency standpoint for the consumer that they're no longer needed? Well, I think reasonably soon, uh, right? I think you, they still need to incentivize new capacity coming on stream locally uh, because these are very capital-intensive processes and they're quite complicated to operate. So you will see even the, you know, the tier one Asian producers of lithium-ion batteries, when they're establishing facilities uh, either in Europe or in the United States, it's taking them quite a long time before they get up to uh, you know, yield and uptime in their facilities that are, uh, let's say, at profitable levels. And given the competitiveness in the market and given that the OEMs are squeezing, in particular, the EV battery sector quite a lot on margins, which they've been doing for 100 years, I still think you're going to need some or see governments providing guarantees or financing support to establish a more level playing field. Because in the first two to five years of conventional lithium-ion battery production, many, many companies will struggle to get up to efficiency levels that provide profit levels that are sustainable. And this, of course, is a core feature of the project financing aspect of, of you know, establishing these facilities. And then gradually, I think you will see more and more commoditized type of market as opposed to this off-take, long-term off-take agreement type structure in the market, which it is today. Uh, and in that context, you know, people can start to produce batteries on spec to, to a larger extent. So I think you will see 
traditional LFP batteries, traditional NMC batteries, and maybe some sort of pricing mechanisms that look like LME type structures, but the battery is the commodity in a way. Uh, still some work to be done there. But this is something that I think inevitably will find, uh, find sensible solutions. And then people are wanting to track these batteries and have RFID codes on them, etc., so that you can leverage all the data on, you know, the thousands and thousands of cycles that many of these batteries will have. And then that also opens up the opportunity to think about batteries as a service uh, and sort of different business models in this regard. And if that, you know, uh, will end up being a business model that is viable in this space, then you'll see a lot of unusual suspects entering uh, entering the market. This is trillions of dollars, right, that, that need to go into this. So anything and everything that homo sapiens have done in other industries will be replicated here in some way, shape or form. Um, so, again, question on subsidies and government support, important to sort of lift it rapidly to the level it needs to be. Because remember, this is probably the most important technological solution to accelerate the energy transition. And the energy transition is here because it's urgent to do something about how we are uh, transporting ourselves around the planet and how we are creating or and using energy. Because uh, if we don't, we will still have 35, 38, 40 billion tons of CO2 equivalents coming into the atmosphere every year. Right now, we are at 420 parts per million, and the 1.5 degree ambition is 425. So, and it's growing by two parts per million per year, maybe a little bit more. So, when people are saying, well, it's a decade, etc., it's actually only two years, three years until we've passed the Paris Agreement threshold at current emission levels. So this is the reason why governments should keep putting very strong incentives into enabling more of this capacity faster, in particular in an inflationary environment that we're seeing right now. But in five, ten years' time, this will be a marketplace that will you know, fuel itself, so to speak. So, Tom, given everything that we're seeing in in the financing market, the technology development, uh, the increase in the renewable sources coming online, where is your vision of where we end up in, say, 2050 in energy transition, uh, kind of holistically looking at at where we're going to be? Your big prediction. Yeah, so my big prediction. So, of course, there are many, many different views out there. I think you will see a world which is hopefully close to 100% electrified or, or running on electricity. I think maybe 70 to 80% of that electricity is renewable. It's impossible to imagine that without very large storage solutions. We are of the opinion that a steady state production capacity of 20 terawatt hours of installed manufacturing capacity annually is required. Tesla and Elon Musk is saying that we need 300 terawatt hours of lithium-ion batteries for the world to be fully decarbonized. That's probably deployed capacity. And if you have 20 terawatt hours of installed manufacturing capacity annualized, that's 15 years of production, which is roughly, you know, what the average duration of these batteries will have. So I think you will see a world in 2050 where we have been able to stop CO2 accumulation in the atmosphere. Hopefully at that point, we've already started to implement CO2 negative technologies and or plant more trees, essentially, in the tropics. Hopefully governments in areas where photosynthesis works really well, meaning in the tropics, have been able to get their act together and and initiate large reforestation programs. Because not only do we need to stop accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere, but we need to pull something out of it, right? Because there's too much in there. And the weather patterns and firestorms and heat waves and all of that stuff we're seeing right now is a consequence of too high CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. And it, even though we stop adding more, we need to actually get it down, right? So we need to go back to 350. And right now we're at 420 parts per million, as I mentioned, right? And that's a shitload, pardon my French, of CO2 that needs to be captured. And hundreds of billions of trees that need to be planted for that to happen. So my vision for the future is one where we are a fully renewable, uh, we're, we're powering the world 100% with renewable energy. 
we are storing a lot of that renewable energy in responsibly and fully recycled and, and, and carbon neutral or even carbon negative uh, battery solutions. I do think you can envisage putting carbon dioxide as a feedstock into producing batteries over time. So then you can actually think about carbon negative batteries. Uh, so the CCUS uh, aspect of it is actually quite interesting. Electrolyte solutions are already today being developed where waste carbon dioxide could be a feedstock. So that is an interesting uh, perspective. I do think, you know, in 2050, cost of energy will be a fraction of what it is today. And we will see whole new concepts and business models emerging because energy is not going to be a limiting factor. Today, we are trying always in industry and, and otherwise to limit the use of energy because it's, a, you know, it's costly. But at that point, I think we will be in a world where we're looking for ways to use more energy because energy is abundant and cheap and renewable. So that sort of philosophically, that sort of creates some interesting thought experiments. But, you know, that's a world I would like to work for. And that's a world that I think my children would want to live in. And quite frankly, it's my responsibility alongside all the rest of us to try to make this world a little bit of a better place. And that's what we are trying, trying to do at Vaya. Well, Tom, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I really appreciate you taking the time and joining us today. How can we keep up with Freyer going forward? Well, I'd love to come on this podcast as often as you'd have me, right? This is topics that, I, as you can imagine, I can speak about forever. This is crucial. It's important. Uh, humanity is now closing in on 8 billion people, and uh, a too large fraction of them don't have access to energy. And many of them only have access to non-renewable energy. And we need to change that equation and doing that by education and information and dialogue is the best way to do it. So have to come back and talk more about what we're doing when we are developing further. Well, great. We'd definitely like to have you back. And I look forward to seeing how Frey continues to grow and hit the expansion targets. So thanks again. Thanks once again to everyone for tuning in, and I look forward to bringing you more groundbreaking stories and industry leaders to the show. If you have any questions or suggestions, make sure you tweet us at, at Interchange Show.